So let's break this down. When I stepped back from news last July, I took the biggest risk of my life. This is exactly what you'll see. Bigger than moving cross country 3,000 miles away from family and everything I knew. But no matter which coast I ping-ponged to and from, my past caught up with me. Unhealed trauma reared its ugly head and turned my baggage into a festering boil that needed tending to. I couldn't walk away altogether and instead used my platform as a means to have unfiltered conversations on taboo topics. It turned out to be the ultimate gift of self-love I could give myself and others. Sharing my story has been cathartic, and hearing your stories has been inspiring on this wild journey we call life. I can't say where this new chapter will take me, but I do know the world is my oyster, and I'm only now scratching the surface. As far as established goes, my next guest has a big resume. Recently, she was featured on MSNBC, she opens for the one and only Jay Leno, Forbes Magazine, New York Post, Huffington Post, and even the BBC. Appreciate a blowjob. Has caught wind of this sassy Pakistani. But no matter how extensive the list of yeah, features crazy. is, they actually have this skin bleaching cream. It's, uh, it's called uh, Fair and Lovely. Uh, I call it Fail and Ugly. Her sharp tongue and witty comedy aims at breaking stereotypes. Buckle up, because this world traveler is using her microphone to get a laugh and heal past trauma. You're listening to And That's Okay, a mental health podcast. This is episode 14 with Mona Shake. I was abused as a child and that's okay. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and thanks for joining. You are watching and listening to And That's Okay. I am your host, Paulina Butska, and today we are joined with the lovely and comical Mona Shake. Mona Shake and I met through a friend of mine uh, who is actually featured on this podcast, Edgy Benson. Edgy is a, a great friend of yours, a great friend of mine. And then as I was pitching this podcast to him, of course, he said, you guys have to meet. Mona has this phenomenal story and you guys have to kind of hash it out as to how you got to where you are today, knowing that there was so much hardship in your life before you got to where you are today. Mona, with that being said, today's episode, we are calling it, I was abused as a child and that's okay. And I want to preface that with the fact that child abuse is not okay, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you have learned to take something so traumatic in your life and have turned it into something pretty spectacular. Let's start with the worst days of your life and, and the things that you've been through and then kind of how you got on this journey of where you are today. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And uh, thank you to my lovely and beautiful friend, Edgy Benson, for suggesting and connecting us. You know, he's he's just so lovely and I just love him and adore him to pieces. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, child abuse is, you know, nothing to laugh at and it's not a laughable topic in any ways. But I feel like, you know, when you go into you know comedy and when you go into stand-up comedy... Like, you can't be taking any chances. They pulled me over at the airport. They're like, ma'am, there's a ticking sound coming from you. There's just a lot of trauma in stand-up comedy. There's a lot of mental health issues in the stand-up comedy world that often goes, um, you know, undetected or ignored. Um, and you know, uh, look, I have had to 
personal comedian friends who committed suicide. So um, three actually marking this year. I had another friend who fell off the wagon and uh, was uh, got drunk, was in Dallas, supposed to be headlining, got drunk, ended up on the freeway, got hit by a truck and died on the spot. Mm. Right. Um, this is a very this is a very serious issue because what happens also in stand-up comedy is that as comedians, we are expected to just perform all the time. You know, we are also human. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, we, we come from trauma, you know, and some people take the time to go to therapy and work on those traumas and other comics don't. And they try to med- self-medicate with drugs or alcohol or other possibly destructive ways that, you know, ended up end up not being so good for them or and, and sadly ends their lives. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, first of all, I do want to acknowledge how much trauma and pain there is in the stand-up comedy world. That's, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld is an exception to the rule uh, because most of stand-up comedy comes from deep, deep pain. If you look at your grades from your uh, George Carlin to your Richard Pryor, um, you know, they all come from pain. They all come from mm-hmm. severe trauma. So, um, you know, but they did something magnificent. They, they took their pain and humanized it and made people, you know, not only laugh themselves, but laugh at, you know, just taking painful situations and, and turning them into something gold, which is so brilliant. And it's something that I aspire to be. Um, so yeah, sorry, what was the question? Did I, did I go on a tangent right now? I totally slightly, slightly, but I, you know, everything that you said, I think is, is so on the nose because so often yourself in the stand-up comedy world, myself in news and being a news anchor TV personality, I think so often people disassociate that we are human and that we do have our own stories that come with that. Right. So, um, I say this every episode, this is why this podcast exists because we are human and this is the human face of mental health. And so to bring it back full circle, you know, let's talk about your trauma. What was it in your life? Um, And, you know, I kind of gave it away a little bit in the beginning that it was, you went through some child abuse uh, growing up that kind of led you to where you are today. So let's go back into kind of how you got here. How did did you get into the stand-up comedy world? So I was born and partially raised in Pakistan, And, you know, I come from a conservative Muslim culture and a Muslim country. First of all, even boys don't pursue stand-up comedy. So let's just get that out of the way, let alone a girl. And, you know, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I was going to be a stand-up comic. Like, that wasn't even a thing. Uh, I just knew that, you know, talking about childhood trauma, I mean, I just grew up in a very domestically violent household. You know, my parents just bicker and fought all the time. You know, I remember my therapist once asking me, what's my earliest memory as a child? And I told him that I must have been about five years old. And I remember my dad grabbing my mom by her hair and bashing it in the wall. That's my first Mm. memory as a child. So I think I always just kind of grew up with this sense of insecurity, the sense of unsafeness that home was never a safe place, Um, which I think, you know, as children, you don't have the language to say it. It's not until you become an adult, you're like, oh, that's what that was. Oh, that's that. Oh, I didn't have the, because as children, you don't have the language or the ability to articulate what is it that you're feeling, especially when you grow up in a house where nobody's talking, right? When nobody's talking, uh, I I bet nobody's going to know what the fuck you're feeling because you're not talking about it, right? Um, no, adults are not talking about it. You're not talking about it. My father, I believe as an adult, you know, I've tried to sit down with my my 13 years of therapy, very proud of it. Uh, I had a fantastic therapy session today, actually. 
I'm a big mental health advocate and I really encourage people to go to therapy as much as they can. My father, I think, was a manic depressive and, you know, he came from a lot of trauma himself. So I think, you know, back then therapy wasn't a thing. You know, we're talking 80s. Therapy wasn't a thing. You know, nobody's really mental health is not a conversation. I mean, mental health is a very new conversation that's taking place even in America. It's a fairly new conversation. Um, So I think my father just had a lot of unresolved issues and a lot of unresolved trauma. And he took it out on his wife and he took it out on his kids. You know, we just didn't know which kind of dad was going to walk in. You know, one day my dad would walk in and be like, I love you guys. You're my world. And he'd be kissing my mom and kissing us. And the next day walk in and just fucking break every piece of furniture, beat the fuck out of his kids. And we just don't even know. So we never knew which dad was going to walk in. We just didn't know. You know, my father would have these tantrums uh, at times where he would lock us out of the house so we would sleep on the sidewalk. So, you know, I mean, look, even even in uh, West Hollywood, uh, which is where I live in Los Angeles, it's a nice neighborhood, but it's not safe to sleep on the sidewalk with children. And in a country like Pakistan and the city of Karachi, which is where I grew up, it's always been an unsafe place. It's always been an unsafe city. I don't know how is it as a man that you're okay with having your young, beautiful wife sleep on the sidewalk with your children. And mind you, two of my brothers, my second and my third brother were given expired vaccination for polio and ended up getting polio because of it. So two of your brothers, two of my brothers were handicapped growing up. So how are, as a man, are you okay with your children sleeping on the sidewalk along with your wife when you very damn well can take care of them, right? So that's being severely mentally ill. Like that's being sociopathic perhaps. That's mm-hmm. being, I mean, that's not definitely narcissistic. There's no denying about that because there's a lot of abuse involved. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that I grew up with. I mean, you know, and it wasn't just my dad. It was my mom, too. Whatever she was getting from my father, she was taking it out on us. And I think with me, my mom, I always felt targeted by my mom. Like, she didn't really do that to my brother, but she did it to me. Um, You know, my mom used to tell me as a child growing up that I was an ugly child, that I was very unattractive, and she couldn't believe I was her kid. And uh, because I'm, I was much darker skin. You look fair and lovely. I know you, Farouk. You got fair and lovely. You're like the whitest Pakistani I know, dude. In Southeast Asia, there's a lot of colorism. You know, being fair skin is like at the top of the of the barrel, right? It's the top, and everything else is less than. I think for my mom, she developed a sense of resentment towards me, and uh, I think maybe because until I came along, it was all boys. So there was no competition in her mind. But then when I came along as a daughter, I was getting a lot of privileges from my father in the sense that, you know, I was getting an amazing education. Um, You know, whatever I wanted, I would ask my dad, my dad would get it for me. You know, and I think in in my mom's mind, she started resenting me because she was like, I'm your wife and you won't give me access to things that you give your daughter access to. You know, and I think she became uh, in competition with me. So my mom would do these things to demean me. (laughs) And as a child, I couldn't understand. And I was like, oh my God, I must be ugly. So because I'm ugly, I got to do things to be good. Like I clearly looks isn't a thing for me. So I got to be smart. I got to be funny. I got to like make up for my ugliness. So I got to do like other shit, you know, to be like, 
Hi, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> don't, don't think I'm ugly. Please don't think I'm ugly. Uh, I totally think I'm ugly, but I'm like smart and shit. Like and funny and shit. And like, I'm like popular in school, you know. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff I started doing. I started acing my, you know, grades. I started doing really became like a popular kid in school. Everybody wanted to like hang out with Mona, you know, it was like a thing. One day my mom showed up to school and saw all these kids like gathered around me and she was like, oh my God. She's like, are they getting around you? I'm like, they're like, oh yeah, we love her. We love Mona. We love hanging out with her. <laughs> and my mom was just like, yeah, that's my daughter. And I was like, oh bitch, I'm your daughter now? What the fuck have I been all this time? Like, fuck you, you know? This is bullshit. And you know, the craziest thing is, Paulina, that as an adult, I realized when I finally came into my own, my teens, and I'm like, I am a replica of my mom. If you see my picture next to my mom, it's like young Mona, old Mona. Yeah. And I'm it's like, good and bad, right? Like, I mean, it's good and bad. I'm sure for you, who is who's had this like battle with yourself over, you know, acceptance from your mother, who she's telling you you're so ugly, and then you look at photos and you're like, wait, I fucking look like you. What the exactly. hell are you talking about? So like, exactly. Really, it's like, or do you hate yourself when you look in the mirror? And maybe that's the thing, right? Like, maybe that's, that's why exactly the honestly what it is. One of the things that you said in the beginning was. You know, you were a child and you guys didn't speak inside the household, right? So how did you know at some point when you got older that what you were experiencing was not normal and that you needed to go seek help? I was in eighth grade, which was the last grade I completed in Pakistan before I moved to the U.S. And um, I remember talking to a classmate of mine, Nadia, and uh, I think it was like first day of school. We were casually turned to her and was like, da -da -da, we were just talking. And I was like, so how often does your dad beat your mom? And she goes, what? I was like, how often does your dad beat your mom? Isn't that like a thing? Everybody, everybody's home does that. And she just looked at me like these with weird eyes. She was like, what the fuck are you talking about? She's like, is that what your father does to your mom? And I froze and I was like, that was the moment of like awakening where I was like, oh this is not normal this oh this level of violence is not normal sleeping on sidewalks is not normal being told you're a piece of shit is not normal oh oh i didn't and then i became very shameful so all the shame started sinking in that really hadn't it had lingered around but it really started sinking in and um i think it didn't for me it's like that was a big moment like as in an eighth grade and then when i moved to the u.s uh you know my parents always lived in pakistan they always uh my four brothers lived here and they lived in pakistan so we were these like these poor immigrant kids that lived in a one-bedroom apartment in jersey city roach infested apartment grew up welcome to immigrant life you know well, we've we've both been life. there yeah, no, I, I mean, remember nothing... those days coming yeah. to america yeah exactly you know you know what i'm talking about when i moved to the u.s my brothers also were taking turns beating the shit out of me and it just got to a point where it just became quite unbearable where you have to constantly call the cops on your brothers which isn't the best feeling in the world and also let me tell you when a hot cop shows up and you're all like busted face how is the guy supposed to ask you out like <laughs> it's hard it's hard to get asked out by a hot cop like you're Creepy brothers are like standing around you. After beating <laughs> the shit out of you. After beating the shit out of you. It's a little rough to go on a date after that. It's a little rough. But I think 
for me, uh, oh wow, we're, we're going real deep today. I was about 17 years old and uh, another very big incident had taken place at home. Uh, another one of those very big fights, one of those fucked up dysfunctional things that my family specializes in. And um, I decided that I was going to kill myself. Uh, I was 17. Uh, I remember being in high school at the time. I was going to graduate soon. And my guidance counselor, who I had become good friends with, because, you know, I moved at 15, which is like the worst age to move at mm -hmm. to another country. Because when you go to high school, you know, all the kids have their own cliques. Like, you're this odd man out, and you're an immigrant on top, so they make fun of you. You're like, oh, you fucking fob, you just got here, oh, you stink of curry. You know, people, kids are fucking assholes. Kids know? are horrible. They're fucking assholes. I remember being uh, put in a, I remember being taken from my high school and put in a, uh, in a psychiatric ward. And I was sitting there and uh, my mom came with two of my brothers. And uh, I, just, I was just so full of shame. I was like looking down, I was so full of shame that I couldn't even look up at her. And she then she said something to me that really just clicked for me. She sat there and she looked, you know, she was like, how, she's like, how could you do this to me? And I was like, one minute, one moment. I am doing this to you? I damn nearly killed myself right now because I'm living in this and I was like well wait a minute no 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 I'm not sick I'm just in a sick environment I'm just around sick people who have not found a way to heal themselves so they keep perpetuating this life of toxicity that I don't need to be a part of so I have to get myself out so I'm not sick I'm just in a sick environment and that's what I need to do and I just kind of made a pact with myself that day that I was gonna get myself out. You have to understand, I've only been in the country two years, right? Coming into third year, not knowing how trains are really ran or the bus schedule or really anything about right. banks or getting a job, making a resume, know nothing about that. So I remember briefly went to a, I briefly went to a community college, right for me. And I made some really lovely friends and they helped me out. They taught me how to make a resume. They taught me how to take trains to New York City. They taught me all these amazing things that legit like saved me, you know? And one night I remember having a big fight with my family. Uh, my brothers, I, I had come out of my artist closet and I told my brothers, I was like, look, I, I don't wanna go to, because they wanted me to become a physical therapist, Polina. No. <laughs> I think there's more potential there, just saying. It's definitely stable. I gotta give it that much. But like, I did like 100 hours of volunteer work at Bayonne Hospital at, for a physical therapy section. And uh, these people that come in, some of the patients that were coming in, they hadn't taken showers since Lincoln was president, okay? Uh. And I was just like, I can't do this. Like, I am not cut out for this. You have to be a very special person to do this i i am not that special like i'm just not i can't do this i'm just mona that's it i'm just mona i just want to tell jokes on stage i just want to tell dick jokes on stage like that's it that's my entire purpose of life and i remember being like no and uh my my family wanted me to become a physical therapist and they gave me an ultimatum and they said either you go to college and you become a physical therapist or we're gonna send you back to pakistan and mom's gonna marry you off to someone so take your pick and i was like how about neither? 
you know, I came to America with just as many rights as you, and I absolutely enti- am entitled to practice and exercise any one of those rights, and you have no fucking say over it. So when I turn 18, you have no say over my life. Only I get to have say over my life. So when I turned 18, I got into a fight. Um, I was already taking, secretly taking acting classes in New York City. And um, I had already kind of discovered, you know, one thing at, some, one thing I think as kids, especially to, that come from trauma or kind of like no support, sometimes, you know, we underestimate ourselves because we don't quite understand how resourceful we can be even at the times when there are no resources, you know? I mean, Tony Robbins says this one thing. He says, it's not about being, it's not about your resources. It's about being resourceful, you know, and I hundred percent agree with that. I think I've all throughout my life, I've seen how I have been resourceful and pull myself out of situations where there were just very dire situations. And I've been able to pull myself out of it because of that kind of mindset, you know? And, um, I think I, I realized at 18 where I was just like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. Like, if I don't get out of here, I'm gonna die. Like, it's not gonna work. It's gonna end badly for them and for me. It's gonna be bad. Mona, I think you were lucky because for whatever reason, you had that inside of you also, you know, that like that fight and that grit to just say, there's gotta be fucking more to life than the shit that I'm dealing with, you know? And so often, you know, kids that grow up in abused households, they don't have that, right? They don't have that moment of, I'm going to break a cycle and I'm going to get out of this household. Usually they, let me put it this way. They want to get out of the household, but they don't realize the damage that household has left in them. You go back into that, uh, that hospital room where your mom gave you that realization of like, you know, if this is about you, are you fucking kidding me? Like I almost took my own life. Like, can you still not see that what you're doing is killing me? And I, I, let, let's talk about that because, you know, the statistics are real around child suicide for, for abuse, you know, for abused victims. And so you almost became that statistic, you know, what yeah. was it past that moment of like that light bulb moment that said to you, um, not only do I never want to be in this situation again, but I know that I need help after this. You know, I didn't know about the help part until I was married my, uh, many years later. I think I was probably about 25, 26, uh, when therapy came into my life and thank God for it. But I think in that moment, uh, when I was in that, uh, lovely psychiatric ward, I, I don't know what it was. I really don't know, Paulina. I just know that I had a, an epiphany and, um, I listened to my gut. You know, a lot of times people think that your gut is like this thing that screams loud. And it's not, it's like whispers. They're like whispers. They're like this kind of a passing thing where it's like you're instinctually, you're just like, this is happening because X, Y, and Z. And I feel like paying attention to your thoughts and paying attention to your that voice inside of you is often uh, undermined and it's often neglected. You know, that's why meditation is so big because that's what you're doing. You're really mm-hmm. sitting with yourself. You know, I'm a big advocate of meditation. I mean, same. I, I feel the difference when I don't do it and I feel the difference when I do it. It's a world of difference of who I am and how my thought process is. So I feel like, I think in that moment, I must've been in a moment of some strange meditation where I listened to myself, where I was like, oh, this isn't about me. This is about you and you being sick, you know, that you haven't found a way of healing yourself. So you keep perpetuating this toxicity 
in yourself and in the environment and i just don't need to be a part of it i don't need to be a part of it you know um i i, I feel like I, even after i moved out i think for many years my mom tried to shame me for it she was like you shamed the family you sh- brought shame upon for the family because at the time what had happened was because when you come from abuse the thing is that you know you're you're in the cycle you don't know any other life like this is normal to you this unhealthy fucked up situations you're in it's uh, you know and i had secretly gotten a job in new york city and had a boyfriend uh at the time i had turned 18 already and uh he was about 25 so he was a lot older than me at the time 18 and 25 is a, quite a significant age gap at, at that, that time yeah yeah he ended up becoming my boyfriend and i was a virgin at the time you know i didn't know anything about sex nobody was talking about sex at home in a conservative muslim household nobody's doing that and um you know my boyfriend ended up raping me you know i didn't know i didn't know anything i ended up getting pregnant i had to get an abortion it was a whole thing it was a whole thing and i had to hide all these things because it was just so much shame attached to all of it right it was so much shame like oh my god like i'm bringing this disgrace upon my family like shame upon my family and i think for a long time my mom kind of held that over me and i was just like right but i'm a fucking environment of fucked up abuse so i'm escaping abuse from one side and then falling into abuse on another side because i know no i don't know any better right this is your normal this, this is, is the normal. only normal that you've ever created and ever have seen right. right i mean i don't know what healthy is i'm fucking know right to me that's normal that's familiar so cool we just do that at what point in your life i should say did you realize that you know you've been through this horrific thing of this rape where like you said you you're repeating a cycle you you weren't even aware that you know this was not normal at what point did you say there has to be a better normal and and at what point did you start living a better normal oh well life got even more interesting because my uh acting coach ended up becoming my husband so i was 18 years old and he was 65 and he was totally normal with that yeah he was totally i mean that if you look back on it that's like pedophilic and shit it's fucking pedophilic like it's gross you know but when you really have no options you're new to the country you're only 3 years in the country you don't fucking know nothing you're coming from fucked up as abusive ass family what options do you have he's the he was the first man who stood up for me he was the first man who was just like I'll protect you I'll take care of you so it makes sense it's like why not you're the person you're the only person standing up for me nobody else is doing it precisely so i'm just like okay you seem like a safe option even though it's like this awkward fucked up age gap but who cares i've lived it awkward fucked up all my life i'll just do this one at least this one is safe at least this one doesn't come with a bunch of fucking beatings and abuse you know i'll take this so i think i just sometimes feel like i've lived so many lives because you know just all this kind of uh just kind of different like different phases of my life had experienced like different level of traumas you know and listen being married to a 65 year old not fun um that is not fun yeah uh, i've been with older with older men it, it it's definitely you know it's got its perks and minuses so yeah i mean the minus definitely you see their balls swim in the toilet and you're like oh that's those are some old balls but oh mm. Okay. Old balls, we're going to get away from those. <laughs> get away from old balls. Oh god. Ah, uh, yeah, no fun. Especially when they take their dentures out in front of you for the first time, you're like, "Oh shit, you have dentures?" 
didn't know that. No, thanks for allowing. What? Yeah, or they're like trying to make out with you, and the denture comes out, and they have to go put the glue back in to put it back in so they can make out with you. Yeah, that's fun. Is that too dark for you? Is that? Is that We're good. We're good. Lot, I'm throwing a lot of shit at you, aren't I, Belina? You didn't sign up for it. it, did you? But you know what? I, I should have known that there was a level of dark humor that comes with with you particularly because of the fact that like you said you have a comedic background um and and you've used the pain and everything that you've been through and all these really fucked up situations because there's no other way to say it call the balls what they are they're old saggy balls like they're 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 old and hairy and gross and so I think you know you've been through the gross hairy parts of your life and now you're on like this great journey of of I mean, you've, you've got a great career right now, right? Like, so let's kind of talk about therapy when that therapy, you said, you know, you kind of mentioned it a little bit that the therapy came when you were married. Was this to this, the, the older man that you were married to? Yeah. Great great pubes. Yeah. That's him. Okay. So you started going to therapy when you were with him in 2005, uh, my father was visiting me and uh, my brothers and uh, long story short, uh, my dad and I had a full-blown confrontation, and I confronted him about all the abuse he had put me through, he had put my mom through, and the family through. And my father literally had a fucking breakdown. Like, he couldn't process it. Like, he, like, regressed back to being, like, an eight-year-old in front of me. And a month after us making peace, my father passed away. So... Um, after that, you know, my ex-husband, as nice as he was in the beginning, he started getting insecure, got, started getting very verbally abusive, started getting emotionally abusive, um, wouldn't let me go to auditions, uh, wouldn't let me train with other, uh, you know, coaches and stuff like that. And he just became very, very controlling and also very, just very verbally, emotionally demeaning, you know. And um, I realized that when my father died, something inside me said, it's time for you to go. It's time for you to go. The man you had to make peace with, you're, you made peace with. You don't have to be here anymore. That father figure you were looking for to protect you, it's over. You made peace. You can protect yourself just fine. You're fine. So um, I wanted to um, get away from my ex-husband because he just uh, it just got worse and worse. He, you know, would just constantly demean me and constantly fight with me and constantly bicker and constantly put me down. And uh, one day I was just having a fucking breakdown. I was just having a nervous breakdown. This is when, and I, this is way before comedy. I, I used to work on the trading floor in New York City. And um, I started off as an assistant and I worked my way up to be an analyst. And I was just having a breakdown. And um, I said, you know, I've heard of people going to therapy and it might help me. And I didn't have a lot of friends to talk to at the time. So I was like, let me find a therapist. And I got lucky and I found this lovely, amazing therapist. And he was an older gentleman. And I sat down with him and I started telling him about my life and started telling him about my current relationship. And he goes, he's the first person who ever broke down the chain of uh, trauma and chain of violence to me. Uh, And no one had ever explained that to me. And he's like, and he repeated, he showed me my entire pattern of how I live my life and what I have and why do I do what I do. And it blew my mind. And I was like, holy shit, all of this makes so much sense, you know? So that man single-handedly saved my life. So shout out to that amazing therapist whose name I can't remember because I'm getting old. (laughs) But he saved your life. So we are happy that he did that. 
Yeah, and he's and, and, and smoking a lot of weed. Uh, so that is also making me not remember his name. But um, and they've done that. He told me he was like, "It's time for you to go. You don't need to be in this relationship." And you know, he helped me really get organized and stuff. And I moved out. We ended up getting divorced. You know, and um, and something amazing, something magical happened because I'd never been on my own before. So it was a really rough time. It was a rough time. You know, to be alone and not know anyone and not have friends and you know because all my friends were his friends. So when we got divorced, they decided with him. They didn't want to side with me. So I didn't know anyone and I literally built my life from scratch. So I would like stay up crying at night and cheer myself up. I would I would watch stand up comedy. You know, that's what I would do. I would watch stand up comedy and it like saved my life. And um, much many many years later, you know, after that, I started, you know, pursuing stage, you know, acting, and I was, you know, I was an actor for a while, and I did, you know, stage acting in New York, and was going for commercials and TV and shit like that. And uh, long story short, ended up meeting a manager who said, "Hey, you should move out to Los Angeles. That would be a better option for you." And I moved out to LA about 10, 11 years ago, and you know, I've just been here ever since. But stand-up comedy, how I fell into stand-up. Is my 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 amazing amazing acting coach Anthony Apeson? God bless him. He's alive and kicking and just amazing. He's the same acting coach for Jennifer Aniston and uh, Ellen Pompeo and Ian Somerhalder. He's discovered mm-hmm. like a bunch of really big talents. He's wonderful. And he pulled me in the, on the side one day and he was like, "Did do you know that you're funny?" And I was like, <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, no, you don't understand. I want to be a dramatic actress. Can be so dramatic. Do you not see me? Like, what? So dramatic right now. Like, I did just what? And uh, he was like, "No, you can still do that." But he's like, he's like, comedic people can do drama. Drama people can't always do comedy. And I was like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And um, and then uh, my mom was actually visiting me. Strangely enough. And uh, my friend Lena uh, Kovanov, uh, who's a lovely human being, because I used to work at Morgan Stanley at the time, and she was like, "Mons, you're so funny. You should do stand up." And I was like, "No, nah, dude, I can't do stand up. I don't even know like what the fuck am I gonna talk about?" You know? She's like, "Just say the shit that you tell me, and you're always cracking me up." I'm like, "Really?" She's like, "Yeah, stand up comedy. Just do it." I'm like, okay. "Never." Me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I can do this. And uh, I got asked to come watch a show with my 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 buddy Cyril, who I love him to pieces. He's my baby brother to this day. I've known him for like gajillions of years. And he brought me to a comedy show. And the very first comedy show I saw, apparently, he told me this recently that I turned to him when we were watching the comedy show, and I said, "I can do that." So you don't even remember saying that? I don't even remember saying that. And must not have been all the weed. Must have been all the. Oh, I didn't even smoke weed back then. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> weed is a recent phenomenon, and then uh, not long after that, I wrote out like a two-three minute bit. I took my mom to my first open mic. How fucking lunatic is that? That's ridiculous. Don't do it, people. Are you listening? If you ever want to do stand, do not, do not take your mother to your first fucking open mic. What are you stupid? I am. I was apparently stupid. Took my mom. And uh, I'm up there, and you know, it's like for the first time you do open mic. When you do comedy, you just do topical shit, right? You're not like you're not fucking Richard Pryor in this shit. Like you don't fucking know. You're new. I'm up there slinging dick jokes and dirty jokes, and <laughs> and my mom is going like this. That is my daughter. Very dumb. 
and people were like oh my god is your mom in the crowd does she know what you're saying and i was like no because language barrier is a beautiful thing baby because she don't know nothing she don't know the shit that's coming out of my mouth right now and i remember walking off stage and uh this uh comic walked up to me uh and he said, how long have you been doing stand-up for? I'm like, oh, that was my first open mic. And he goes, there's no fucking way that was your first open mic. I was like, nah, dude, that was my first. He was like, you are a natural. Don't you ever stop doing stand-up. Like, stand-up is your calling. And pretty much after that, like, um, I came, uh, visited LA. And um, the very, like, the day I got back to New York, I got a call from the club where I opened mic. And the booker watched me, and he booked me in the main room after one open mic. Which is insane. It's that not is insane, but how great for you. I mean, all knowing everything you've been through at that point and knowing that you didn't have a clear path, you thought you were going to be this dramatic actress, right? I mean, you're going to be starring on, what is it, um, General Hospital or whatever, any of the- Days of our lives. Days of our lives. You're going to be in all of this, right? To know that you have now booked your first gig um, as a stand-up comic, with your mother being there, of course, of all people, uh, slinging dick jokes. <laughs> what is Girl, going no. through your mind? I mean, this must Girl, be a surreal no. moment. It's surreal. It was surreal. And also, you know what? Looking back, I'm grateful she was there. I really am. Because her presence gave me the strange courage to get up there and do this, you know? Not that I wouldn't have been able to do it if she wasn't there, but it helped her being there, which is so bizarre if you really think about it. I think a lot for a lot of people would make them nervous, but because I'm a lunatic, uh, I thoroughly have been fucking somehow took it as a positive thing. And uh, not very long after that, I ended up moving to uh, LA from New York. And when I moved out here, all the auditions I was doing, I had read for a lead role in a Steven Spielberg project. And then my agent was like, you're too big for New York, you need to move out to LA. And then I moved out to LA and all the auditions dried up. And I was like, fuck it, I'm just gonna do stand-up because I fucking love doing stand-up. And I've been doing stand-up for almost 10, 11 years now. Some of the things that we talk about on this show, a lot of them is breaking cycles and, and really cutting out toxic people out of our life. <clears throat> for you, um, you made peace with your father before he died. And I think, you know, that is a beautiful thing, but you never cut your mother out of your life. How have you maintained a relationship with your mother uh, all these years in light of all the trauma that you went through as a child? It's been rough, right? I mean, I, I, I think I'd be lying if I said it had been anything better than that. I think my mom and I, uh, when I had just turned 30, this is right before me moving to Los Angeles. Now you know my age. Um, but, um, Right before I moved here, um, something something very interesting happened. I had yet another epiphany from all the therapy that I was going through that I no longer was looking to my mom. I was no longer looking at my mom as my mom. I was looking at her at the, as this lady I met at a party who told me about her sad, tragic life, and I just had compassion for her. And I don't need love from her. I don't need acceptance from her. I don't need appreciation from her. Uh, not on the level that I needed before, because at that point, I feel like and I, I had developed this adult inside of me. So I ended up becoming the mother I always needed for myself and to a lot of people around me. And mm. I think that single handedly saved me because I no longer looked to my mom for validation or for love. I could, you know, I just looked at my mom and I just made peace with her. And I was like, look, I was like, you 
come from a lot of trauma yourself. Like you haven't had the tools of going to a therapist like I have, right? So I'm gonna have extra compassion for you, right? And you're 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 just this lady to me that I met at a party who told me about her sad life, and that's how I'm gonna treat you, right? If I can be so kind with strangers and go out of my way to help them, why can I not find this deep down compassion for a woman? that gave birth to me and gave me an opportunity to come to America to live the life that I have today, I can find that level of compassion for her. I can, I'm capable of it. I'm capable of it. I know she's toxic. I gotta put up my boundaries, right? It's taken me a year, you know, a number of years to kind of find that place that kind of some kind of a healthy balance where it's like, this works for me and this doesn't work for me, right? Mom, uh, you can come and stay for X number of days, but you can't overstay your stay. Mm. You have to go. Like my mom was visiting me for two years, Polina. She was visiting. It's a long time to visit. (laughs) I love my mom. And um, she is now the one setting boundaries. She's like, I don't want to live with anybody. I don't want to see, like, we like our space. That's right. We're adults now, right? Like we're no longer children. You don't want to be babysitting somebody and you don't want to be babysat anymore either. So I get that. And I think my mom, when she lived with me for two years, those were some rough fucking years. Tell you that much, Polina. You know how many overages you have to run on your phone watching porn because you can't watch it in your regular TV because your mom's in the living room? That shit sucks, yo. It fucking sucks, Melina. Uh, you know, just just trying to date people or just trying to come home late. You know, one day I came home late and my mom was up. And I was like, why are you up? And she was like, it is 2 o'clock in the morning. And I was just like, go the fuck to sleep. I'm an adult. You, I am You're not living with house. me. Go yeah, to sleep. Poor- you are living with me. You are not the one who makes the house rules. I do. So if you don't like the house rules, there is the door right there and you can leave. You are welcome to head out. That is cool with me. And I think she got the message. And I think that was the first time where I really started laying the boundaries down. It's like, this does not work, right? My house, my rules. You want to do your rules? Go live in your own house, right? And I think it has been, a, 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 you know, a... It's been a painful, uh, you know, growing pains, you know. Um, am I ever going to have the relationship I want with my mom? No, she's not capable of it. She's not. You know, I was just visiting my mom two weeks ago in Dallas. She's just this, you know, shell of a person that once was my mother. That's who she is, right? And I just got to gotta love her for that, right? That's just, that's just who she is, right? For me to sit there and try to turn her into something or expect something else from her, that's on me. That's not on her. That's not me, right? That's me creating some crazy narratives, churning out some crazy shit that, you know, oh, my mom's this way and, oh, she does this. No. She has, you know, it's the greatest quote by uh, Maya Angelou, who I love and adore. She said, when people tell you, when people show you who they are, believe them. Mm -hmm. I believe my mother when she showed me. I believe my siblings, who, you know, and in general, just when people show me who they are, I believe them. I don't challenge them. I'm like, thank you for letting me know, you know. And I think that's the thing with my mom. It's a, uh, is it tough? Yeah. Is it, is it hard keeping in touch with a, a, a toxic relationship that sadly is your mother? Yeah. But you know, for me, it would be a lot more painful, not knowing where my mom is, that she's an aging, old widow, mm-hmm. you know, with really you know, next to no support versus talking to her, dealing with her bullshit from time to time, putting down the boundaries and, but still marching through. To me, that's a lot less painful than just not talking to her because not talking to her would just kill me. 
because I'm not wired that way. I'm not wired in a sense. I'm wired in a way where I like to communicate. I like to process shit. I like to talk it out. I like to whatever it is. We're not perfect. I'm not perfect. God knows I'm flawed. You know, like we can just talk about it. If we can, if we can talk about it. If not, I understand where you stand, and you know, I just find a way to gather my shit and just, just move on. The boundaries are really something that I struggle with. I think so many of the listeners and viewers um, who are going to be tuning into this are absolutely struggling with boundaries. And those boundaries look so different for everybody, right? Like, I mean, that's how I got myself into stupid situations, you know, with my marriage, how I got myself into stupid situations, just in general at work and, and things like that too, where, you know, my boundaries, I did not know what my boundaries were. And so I'd let other people bulldoze over them. And so here we are, you know, you're kind of talking about I've accepted the toxicity. I know that it's there. Um, but as long as I know what I have to put in place, kind of that fencing around me and that, you know, aura, whatever, um, the bubble wrap around you, those boundaries, um, you can't come into my life until then. Right. Right. And so I think that that's, that speaks so much as somebody who, uh, you know, just to your character and to your person, really, as and I think all the years of therapy, honestly, I mean, it's showing because to have healthy boundaries after being what you've been through and, and knowing that, you know, life could have been so much worse for you and it could have happened. I mean, and it's been horrible for you. Let me, let me say that, you know, like it has not been great, but it, it has not been fun by any stretch of the imagination. You know, you yeah. make it very lighthearted when you talk about it, but we've talked about some really tough shit that you've been through and a lot of moments that, you know, are psychologically damaging. Um, and people, certain people don't bounce back from them and, and they will never get the help that they need. So luckily for you, you have gotten that help and it's phenomenal to hear kind of like you on the other side of this. And, and what's more, I love hearing from you too, is that, you know, you're continuing your, your journey with mental health and you're continuing to go to therapy all these yeah. years later. That's interesting. I was asking my therapist that uh, about a month or so ago, and I was thinking, am I going to be in therapy for the rest of my life? She was like, well, let's put it this way. Sometimes people, you know, are going through certain things in their lives. They come to therapy, they help resolve it, and then they go away. And then they come back when they need it. Otherwise, they just go on with their lives. And it's interesting because I definitely went through a phase where I wasn't seeing a therapist, right? I was just living my life, you know, hustling with ther- you know, as a uh, hustling as a comic and stuff like that. And I didn't quite have the, you know, uh, means to have a therapist. But, you know, thank God now that I got back into therapy and, you know, it's been it's been quite wonderful. So I think it's just an ongoing thing. I think people who come from, you know, unsafe homes or come from trauma or come from abuse. I think for us, it's a lifetime of processing. I think it's a lifetime of healing journey uh, for people like us. You know, um, I think I think one of the greatest things therapy has done for me is that I don't feel like a freak most of the time, like I did, I used to. I, I never felt like I belonged anywhere. I, you know, I went to Pakistan. I didn't feel like I was Pakistani enough. I came to America and I was just like, you know, I'm not American enough, right? I'm an immigrant. Uh, um, you sit down among your, you know, Pakistani Muslim friends and you're like, I'm not, I'm not that religious. So it doesn't really apply to me, you know? And then, so you really got to ask yourself, who am I and where do I belong? And I think, um, I think a lot of immigrant kids go through this, where they go through an identity crisis, where they're like, where do I belong? You know, what, what really is my identity? And you know, I really, after 10 years of 
soul searching and um, struggling, I came to the conclusion that my home is where I am, you know, mm -hmm. wherever I am, that's my home, you know, um, you know, my identity is who I am as a person. It is not an ethnicity or religion or a caste or creed or even gender. It is just you as a person and your characteristics. That really is your character, you know, and uh, that's your home. That's your identity. And nobody can. And once you once you find that and once you get in that place, really, nobody can take that from you. It, you're unshakable. Unshakable. Ms. Shake, you are unshakable. Mona, what advice do you have for anybody listening who either grew up in a fucked up household, because I'm not going to put it any other way uh, in your own words, who does feel alone, who kind of, you know, needs that extra push or that extra word or motivation from somebody who's been through it? What do you what do you say to them? I say to them, if you have the means to secretly get a therapist, get one. Find find a, a counselor, somebody who can help you with your mental health. Because until you have this straight, nothing else will be straightened out in your life, right? First, you got to take care of your mental health because this is where it comes begins from. Everything begins from here. Second, I would say that that's just a very temporary phase of your life. That's not really your life. You're just born into those circumstances. You didn't choose that. None of us chose to be born in the families we're born into. You know, that is just our soul's purpose. Now, I don't know how spiritual your audience is or how you are, but I'm a very spiritual person. You know, I read this great quote recently. It said, it said religion is for people who believe in hell and spirituality is for people who've been there, you know? Mm. You know, and I, I definitely relate to that because I'm just yeah. like, I, it makes total sense why I have become such a spiritual being. It's because I have been through hell, you know, and people who are going through this, um, I, I want you to know that um, courage is not exclusive to one person. It's not an exclusive thing. You very much have the courage and you very much have the ability to give yourself permission to get yourself out of a toxic situation and go to where you're go to where you're, you're, you're wanted, go where you're wanted. You don't longer need to go and fit yourself as a square peg in a, in a round hole. You don't need to do that. This, it's not necessary. You know, shit that's happening to you is not your fault. It's just, you are just a victim of circumstances. So in order for you not to be a victim of circumstances, remove yourself from the circumstances, find a way there are enough resources. Look, we live in a pretty resourceful country. We live in America. It's a different conversation. If you live you know, in a country that doesn't have the kind of resources this country does. But we have a fuck ton of resources here. You know, there's, there's, you know, Medicaid, you know, there's Medicaid, there's whatever, Medi-Cal or, you know, whatever help you can get. You, there's NGOs, there are different services. There's fucking, you can call them up and be like, I need help. Can you connect me to an NGO who can help me out? There are plenty of resources, but I feel like it's not even, it's not even so much about, I think a lot of people who come from abuse, they get lost in the fact that they don't know how to access it, is that they don't want to give themselves permission. Mm. Because there's a lot of shame attached. Oh my God, I'm gonna expose my family. Oh my God, that makes me a bad person. Or oh, if I talk about my family, then my family's gonna shame me for it. Or that, that makes me a bad person. And it's like, no, it doesn't do any of those things. You're actually just putting up boundaries, protecting yourself and getting yourself out of a fucked up situation so you can live the life that God has intended for you. That's all. We spoke about this when I approached you about this topic. I said to you, I did not grow up in a 
you know, in an abusive household. I don't know what abuse feels like or looks like in the household growing up. God bless, um, Melina. I'm you know, glad. And, and I'm, what is it? I said, God bless. I'm glad. <clears throat> Honestly, I, I think, you know, I, I'm very lucky in that sense. Um, you know, all the trauma and the abuse that I, I experienced happened uh, after 21, you know, so the last 10 years of my life have been very traumatic and very much full of different kinds of traumas and abuses. And so hence why we are here talking about this. But, um, you know, I, I think for for me, there was a moment of, I knew that certain parts of my life were, you know, when certain abuses would happen or certain things would pop up, I would be like, I know that there is a healthier way to do this, you know, and for people who like yourself grew up and, you know, you kind of mentioned this a little bit too, growing up in a household that's not stable and growing up and seeing that, and you think that this is normal, how do you break that cycle, right? Like, how do you, how do you go back and say, you know, you, you said there's that shame and, but past the shame, I think there has to also be a realization that, that realization that you had in the hospital, that realization that you had in eighth grade talking to that friend, right? Like those were pivotal moments in your life where you were just like, wow, what I'm going through is not fucking normal. Some kids don't get that, right? And then they kind of keep going and then that cycle continues where they either become the abuser later or they continue to be abused. Ultimately, it all starts from you, right? It's all you. You have to eventually, I, I think... I, I think there are enough, when you go start going out of the world, when you come from abuse, when you go and start going out into the world, you, there's no way in hell that you cannot notice how different, and you, when you talk to other people, how different their upbringing is than yours, you know? And, mm. I, 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 you know, I'm sure that the folks that have experienced it or are experiencing it, and I don't want to speak on behalf of people, but you do begin to realize like, hey, this is different. like. Not everybody grows up with this kind of bullshit that I'm growing up with. Oh, okay, so this is not normal. So let's let's start with that. That's the baseline. The baseline is where I am at is not normal. What part of that is not normal? How fucked up is it? Look, there's people keep talking about normal, really, and I've used that word too, but there is no such thing as normal. There is such thing as healthy, but there is no such thing Correct. as normal, right? Normal would be different things to different. I mean, abuse to me was normal for a very long time, right? That's normal, right? So it's all relevant. But healthy is a different conversation, right? Healthy is having loving people, having people who support you, give you words of affirmation, love you, to hold you close, to have your back, take care of you, you take care of them, vice versa, right? Being in an amazing, healthy, thriving environment. That's a different conversation. I feel like when you do start going onto the world and you, when you see, notice these differences, act on those differences. Find a way to go get help, find a way to find a counselor, a therapist, uh, even even if you if you're religious, you know, go to your religious, you know, head, like whether it be a, a priest or whoever, and talk to them. And who knows, maybe they'll recommend you to a therapist. But I always recommend a hundred percent therapy. I think, and it really boils down to you. I mean, you have to be willing to accept the fact that you're in a fucked up situation, and how the fuck are you gonna get out of it? You know, you know, I I I personally don't think like. You know, look, I, I have siblings, I have one of my one of my brothers and I've talked to him about going to therapy for years. He doesn't want to go. I can't make him. I can't make him. I know he has a lot of unresolved trauma. I know because we grew up in the same fucking household, right? But he refuses to go to therapy because whatever his fears are, he refuses to go. I can't make him. So I think ultimately it boils down to you. Do you want to better your life or do you want to live in this fucked up weird cycle where you keep doing the same shit over and over again 
keep getting the same fucked up results, and then you say to yourself, why the fuck am I still here? Well, because you haven't cracked the code. You haven't cracked the code of the fucked upness that you grew up in. You gotta go crack that code first. You wanna get out of that cycle? You gotta break that fucking code, you know? And some people choose to just live in it for the rest of their lives, and that's fine if that's the choice you've made, right? But there are other people like myself who are just like, this isn't enough for me. This toxicity, this fucked upness isn't enough for me. I need more. I deserve more. I have more to offer this world than this fucked up ass shit, you know? I, I remember somebody once telling me, uh, asking me, they're like, what would have happened if you had went back to Pakistan and been married off? And I said, I probably would have committed suicide. I mean, even before I would ever, you know, get pregnant or anything, I, I would have probably just killed myself because I, I knew that I was meant for bigger things, you know? And I knew that in possibly in an environment like, environment like that, I would never be supported for my dreams. I would never be supported, you know? And, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones. I really am, Blaina. You know, even with all my bullshit and all my trauma, I really am one of the lucky ones that somehow with when uh, with the with the the great the greatness of God, the the you know, the God bestowed its kindness upon me and put me in the path of some amazing people who helped me pull pull out of my toxic situations to get on the journey and the path I am today. So, you know, it's not it's not all me, but it starts from me. It starts from you, right? But then universe stuff and they're like, I'll help you out. Every episode that I have um, recorded so far, every person that I have spoken to, you know, certain people I ended up meeting just through my job and, and that's how we met, but other people and, and their stories, what they kind of also echo is your words is the fact that, you know, they had these people kind of stepped into their life and you just had to keep going. And I think that it also, like you said, it starts with you and it starts with you saying that either I'm worth more or there has to be something better or just feeling and believing, right? I, I know that for so long, even when I would say, you know, there has to be more, there has to be more. And people would just be like, just shut up, just get married, just do this, just do that. I didn't want to do any of those things. I did not want to do what you were telling me to do. I wanted to travel. I wanted to go meet people. I wanted to run away from my problems and find a way to forge my path and, you know, kind of deal with my trauma in my own way. Listen, that trauma came back around and hit me in the ass a couple of times, right? Like my own unresolved shit hit me over the head many, many times until I finally fucking learned. However, yeah. I, I did not take no for an answer, right? Like I did not take, um, you know, and it's the same with here, same with reporting. If, if I got upset every time somebody said no to me, my God, I would not be doing anything, right? I mean, because 90% of the, the job in news is the fact that people tell you no, they don't want to do an interview with you. You just got to have to fucking move on and keep going. What's your plan B? And so for a person like me, there's always a plan B, right? Like you just don't let things get you down. They do, right? Like life gets real shit situations happen. Um, you know, fucked up childhood to happen, uh, fucked up relationships happen, S fucking suicide happens, a depression happens, um, overdoses, addiction, everything, all of these things do happen, but it starts with that one and only person also to fix all those things. And that's the person that is inside your body, right? Like the soul right. and the, the being that's in there. So Mona, you have been phenomenal. I think just to end things out, I think one last question, because I don't want this to end, um, is kind of you, you know, you've managed to take everything that you've been through and, and like throw it on stage. What is the response from your family now 
where you are so vocal about mental health. You are so vocal about the abuse you've been through and the things that you've been through. And not only that, you also really take a lot of great jabs at like politics and and, local, and things that are happening worldwide and, and locally. You just, you don't give a fuck. You just keep going. Um, what has the response been from, from your family? So um, my family, one of my siblings, uh, who's the only one I really talked to, I don't really talk to any of my other siblings, uh, he uh, heard one of my podcasts. Now, I didn't know that he was listening to my content because he's never told me. He's never, he never told me that he had any interest in my, in my content. You know, I, I know that I would point out stuff to him like, oh, I'm going to be on this or I'm going to be on that or check me out. And he would like listen in, but he'd never give me any feedback or never be like, it was good, it was bad. So I just didn't know. I was like, oh, I guess he just didn't watch it. He doesn't care. I'm like, all right, whatever, you know. Um, and apparently he heard one of my podcast sessions where I was, he, according to him, going in on him and on the family about them. Um, there was this one incident where my brother uh, during Thanksgiving pulled a knife and chased me with it and was coming to stab me. And I put my jacket on and shoes with no socks while it was 20 degree weather outside and walked out and walked around the neighborhood for like two hours because I was too scared to go home. And I was like, and apparently I called my brother a butcher, apparently. I, you know, I don't remember that, but maybe I did, you know? And my brother's like, how dare you? He got so mad at me. And he was like, I don't remember doing any of those things. Now, when do abusers ever remember any of their wrongdoings? Paulina, when do they ever do that? You know, and, uh, you know, him and I got into a bit of a conversation and a bit of a fight, you know, about him not acknowledging his wrongdoings. So to answer your question, um, how do they feel about it? Um, with all due respect at this point, Paulina, I don't give a fuck. Um, because it's too much burden to bear the pain of the trauma and now you're gonna step in and invalidate my feelings on top of it you don't get to do that you don't get to do that you're not the boss of me i'm the boss of me so you don't fucking get to do that to me that's how i feel about it i love it you're not the boss of me mona shake everybody mona you have been phenomenal uh keep fighting that good fight keep you know belly laughing and making everybody else just uh cry from from just the the tears of happiness i guess because really you are such a bright light um we have laughed i've laughed more with you i think than any other episode that's for sure um, really i, I was like oh my god this is such an intense conversation i'm happy it is an intense but listen they've all been intense right like that's the thing that's these conversations are not easy um they still have to be had and yeah. if we can at some point redefine the way we talk about them and we can have people like you who has turned that trauma into something just so entertaining for everybody as well while still talking about what you've been through and i'm sure that that is cathartic for you that i think you're already you know 10 steps ahead of everybody else well you know i, I don't know about the 10 steps ahead but i you know i do uh, i do recommend people to uh really this word it's it's really stuck with me and i'm gonna continue to say it give yourself permission give yourself permission it all boils down to permission permission from somebody else 
permission from, you're waiting for permission from your parent, from your sibling, from your spouse, from your boyfriend, girlfriend. You don't need to wait for their permission. You can just give it to yourself. You're very capable of it. Wise words from Miss Mona Shake, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to And That's Okay, a mental health podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe below. You can also find me on YouTube at And That's Okay with Paulina Bootska. Check me out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time.